What do you mean smart consultants, like technology consultants or, well, yeah, well, or just we're, external ones? They're consulting to the mining business to for us to apply for a mining licence. So mm-hmm. to do that, we have to um, uh, undertake a lot of studies in the field, uh, ecological studies, um, you know, different, you know, dust, air, sound. Um, and we also need to... Uh, deal with our native title uh, friends. What's yeah. what's that like these days? Um, I look, I, I uh, you know, personally, I don't see it as a, a real issue. Um, I I believe we need to treat them um, uh, properly, and and that's the way that I'm going about it. I'm not not arguing at all. I'm just sort of um, trying to uh, come to an agreement on the sort of compensation we can give them. What are the kind of like? conversations that go on that are different to that of just saying hey how can we kind of have a compromise and give you good reimbursement well uh, you know i can't really imagine what other people would do um but i i feel the right way to do it is to um you know obviously realize that we're actually um new to the area um compared to um these people that are go back uh, a, long, a long time in history and um, um, try to understand what they, they see in the area and make sure that we um, are careful with anything that they think is um, is part of their, their history. Yeah, okay. What kind of things have you ha- have come up so far that are part of their history? So I'll just turn my phone off. Yeah, I think um, so far we've just... Um, come across items that could have been um, so stone chips that could have been some sort of a utensil, and uh, when we when we um, uh, come up with this sort of stuff, we just have to make sure that we um, exclude that area from uh, the, the survey that we're doing. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of so, let me just introduce you. We have the CEO of Lobestone Mines. And your name is Robert Williamson. That's correct. And shout outs to Ian Plymer for, for giving your contact details and assisting organisers. You're a good man. Um, so this is what's your voyage. Essentially what we do, we sit down, we have a conversation about the journey of your life and you know, go down all the rabbit holes of the type of knowledge that you have and yeah. we just have a chit chat. No yeah, beauty. So in terms of like how do you even go about choosing what, like the the zone of lobestone mines? Like, how'd you find the zone? And well, uh, we're, we're after magnetite iron ore, and, um, and because it's magnetic, it occurs in the ground, and you can find it through aeromagnetic surveys. So we, um, like a plane, just goes over. That's correct. Yeah, and the, and the government actually did that quite a while ago, and so we've just. Um, been able to uh, apply for tenements in areas that are showing anomalies. Tenements being, like uh, well, these are exploration tenements that are um, that you are uh, given where you apply for and uh, are um, given by the government uh, under an, uh, an exploration lease agreement. Okay, and how's a first? Why are you looking for that type of mineral? Like, what's the utility of it? Uh, well. The, the area that we're in um, is an ancient seabed and in, in that seabed 
um, this siltstone formed, which had an iron content. And in different areas, the iron content is, is different uh, values. Um, in the area that we have our tenements, the iron content is a commercial grade from which we can um, undertake our feasibility studies and, and eventually um, uh, establish a mine to mine it. How is it defined if it's commercial grade or not? Like what's the, what's well, the characteristics you need? Uh, well, to be commercial, you, right, you need to have a decent in-situ grade that you, uh, the cost of extracting it, processing it, um, uh, still has a, has a, um, a profit level. Yeah, okay, fair. <laughs> Pretty standard, eh? Yeah. Um, all right, cool. And what is that used for? So you melt it down, you refine it Oh, this, here, is, this is the ingredient for steel. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so is it like, is what other ingredients are part of that supply well, chain? Basically, um, uh, to make steel, you, you need um, iron, which is what this is, and carbon. Um, and, uh, you know, to... Uh, to make it, uh, we would be mining this and creating a concentrate. And that concentrate uh, would be sold to a steel mill where they would pelletise it. Um, and then the pelletising um, would go into a, a steel furnace and um, be um, reduced down you know, into, um, into steel. Yeah, okay. And is this refining into pellets done in Australia or do you... Well, we'd, we'd love it to be done in Australia, but um, there, there have been some attempts to do it. There is a little bit of um, uh, the manufacture of uh, pellets in Wyala. Is that with Sunjiv's yes. big plans? Yeah. yeah okay. how, how are we on those plans? Where are they at? Uh, well, um, they, they're, uh, we have nothing to do with that company, but um, you know, uh, they, they seem to be successfully... Um, mining their iron ore and, and turning it into steel. Yeah, okay, that's good. And do they open it up to other companies like yours? Or um, I'm sure that um, if we wanted to, we could have an agreement with them around, um, uh, you know, supplying them with um, feedstock for their, for their steel mills. Yeah, okay, cool. And so when did lodestone mines commence? Well, lodestone um, in, in, in different forms has been around over 10 years. Um, uh, one of my business partners, um, Gordon Toll, is the major shareholder and, um, and he um, was the person who undertook to apply for all these tenements. Um, Gordon and I have um, worked together um, before on, on other projects uh, but we've, we've come in to, to this project together and um, uh, we want to see this project through to actual production. Yeah, cool. And how did you get into the mining industry? I was born in Broken Hill. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can't you can't sort of get away from mining if you're born in Broken Hill. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, went to school. Um, ended up on the mines in Broken Hill uh, as an apprentice, and then followed different mining companies and worked for them and worked my way up from um, from uh, a tradesman through to an engineer and then uh, eventually um, you, you take that pathway from the technical into the strategy and become a director. Yeah, okay. And how, how, how long was that process in each, like, stage? 
Well, you know, I've, I've been a director now, I suppose, you know, for nearly five years, but um, prior to that, so I was probably um, uh, 30-odd years as, as an engineer. Um, uh, I've worked over in the West. Um, uh, my, my actual uh, core competency is robotics. Real? Yeah. How did you work? What kind of robotics did you work with or create? Well, um, when you are um, looking after a very large production line or uh, mine, um, you, you need to be able to assay um, as you are producing or it's, it's going across a conveyor belt. And uh, it, the greater sample that you can handle, um, the more accurate uh, you are in determining what, what you're producing. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, with these uh, robots, you're able to handle uh, between 120 and 200 kilos at a time. Uh, humans can't do that. Um, humans, even handling 20 kilos, um, get bad backs and what have you. So we um, uh, we, we changed to uh, using robots to do, to do that sort of work. So how does that actually, like, could you paint the picture of how that works? Okay. Does it pull it out of the ground and... Well, uh, it's already been... Well, a lot of these things now are automated. So uh, even even the uh, excav- excavators and the trucks and what have you. Um, so um, they would uh, uh, mine the ore, um, take it to a point where it could be crushed, and then as it's being processed, um, you would need to be able to take samples. So uh, the samples would be taken um, usually... When one conveyor falls onto another, you have a falling stream, so you can run, run a um, a scoop, and and when it when it's a very large, it'll be a very large scoop because it's a large tonnage, and that then is then diverted into a laboratory where these robots can um, handle it and do different um, analytical tasks with it. So, just the same as um, what uh, lab lab technicians would have done in the past, but they can uh, they can do this with a lot larger samples. So. These these robots are the car industry robots, so oh the big the, the, the big, the big arms, yep. yeah wow. So um, so we didn't have to invent the robots. The robots were already there, and yep. um, you know robots. Uh, the actual robot itself, I think, has been quite stable in and reliable for quite a while. Um, once they went from from the hydraulic to the electric servo uh, kind uh, with, with encoders and and the like. Um, the bit that's changed is the end effectors. All of the AI that now uh, you can work with with the robots is is the bit, um, and this AI that's continuing is is with where this, this change will occur. What kind of AI is uh, currently prevalent in mind? Oh, um, well, it it's usually now uh, the visual, so you can um, or uh, you you can. Um, be able to determine uh, different types of ore, basically with um, with with different visual uh, cameras and what have you on, on your robot. Yeah. So um, yeah, that that's an example of AI. Okay, so one of the things that that big claw that you're talking about that pulls it off yep. and tests it would would like break it down more and say, all right, out of this hundred kilos, there's this much in this, which is a sample saying that we. Every hundred kilos, we can expect to get two kilos or twenty kilos That's of correct. whatever you're looking yeah. for. Yeah, it's a it's a general. Uh, you, you you break it down um, using an ISO standard. What's so that? there's so well, uh, 
It's um, over the stupid it's questions, a, but I, I just don't know. Okay, so an ISO standard is, is an international standard such as we have Australian standards, which are an AS standard. And, and so there's a recognised ISO standard for the sampling of iron ore. Mm. And, and so under that standard, it, it prescribes, um, you know, this, uh, I suppose the speed at which you take the sample and then how you split that sample down. It also prescribes how you measure the moisture in the sample and how you, from a big sample, break it down to a small sample, which you can then take into an analyzer to understand the, the iron content. Yeah, okay. And how does the moisture play a part in that? Oh, yeah, the moisture um, is, is uh, something that the client doesn't want to pay for. So yeah, okay. if, you're, if you're loading, loading a ship, there's actually two things with moisture. Um, if you're loading a ship um, and you've got 10% moisture, um, then um, if you've got 100,000 tonnes and 10,000 is moisture, you're only going to get paid for the for the 90, but you've got to pay the freight on the 100. Mm. So is there drying out methods that um, you guys do? Is not it too costly to do that? Not so much um, drying out methods, but um, uh, you, you just have to be careful in the way that you... Uh, load ships and you, you've got to make sure that you're using enough ore that doesn't hold a lot of moisture. Um, there's another uh, rule uh, called the, the TML where um, you have to uh, be able to, um, uh, I suppose, tell the, the ship's captain um, the actual moisture level of, of that ore. Um, there's an effect... Um, if there's too much moisture in in or in a, in the big hold of a ship, which is which is called liquefaction, and, and um, it it can actually cause the ship to turn over because mm-hmm. it'll the the ore will liquefy well, at a certain level. So and then just make everything really rocky. Well, it'll it'll the, if the ship will list and then it'll um, eventually fall over. So yeah. so basically, a ship's captain is um, he he is um, guided by the insurance companies, um, and the and and so if you want an insurance company to cover a ship for a shipment, um, you have to make sure that you have the right moisture level. Yeah, okay. And a lot of this comes back to the measurement that we do with the robots. Wow, because <laughs> you just take into account this is the moisture levels, and then they may position it differently on a ship and so stuff like that. Well, it, um, if the moisture level isn't right, the ship just doesn't. Doesn't sail, so you've got to be able. What's to that level? Is it like twenty percent, ten percent? Each different type of iron ore has a different um, moisture level, but is that because it's down in the earth and different? Like yes, yes. it can be can be to do with the way that it's um, been been mined and and in it and the moisture that it is in situ. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because mining uses a lot of water, doesn't it? In terms of like spraying everything while you're cutting, like uh, you would with cement. No, not really. No, um, the the a lot of the water that in mining, uh, in the actual mining part, is more to do with um, dust suppression. Yeah, some um, people just don't get dusted out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. And what was like the journey? Because you've been in this director position for five years now. Yeah, yeah. How did you actually jump from being the strategist and engineer to a director? Uh, well, I think it just comes with experience and, um, you know, I really enjoy being an engineer. I'm a um, chartered engineer and 
a fellow of Engineers Australia, and um, I, I um, uh, am part of Engineers Australia um, as a volunteer to sort of um, promote engineering um, to students and what have you. Um, but what's uh, your sales pitch? What's your sales <laughs> pitch to the kids. Uh, yeah, usually um, do your maths and your science and. Um, uh, there are so many different careers within within engineering, um, and uh, uh, from that, I think uh, the different things that I've done in mining, um, in engineering, uh, get you to a stage where you you understand enough about um, um, the mining of the ore, the processing of the ore, and what have you, and um, and so therefore you end up in a role where you're actually um, at, at, at the board level designing the mine, raising the money, um, sort of understanding, you know, the total um, mine, um, mine life, I suppose. Yeah, okay. What is the mine life? <laughs> uh, the mine life of what we've got in this project is multi-generational. Okay, okay. so we're, um, this is a very large resource sitting here in South Australia. Um, and, um, you know, I talk to my friends and, you know, with their little children and I say, well, they'll be working for us for sure and their kids will be working for us. So um, with, what we, with what we've got um, and you can only really declare based on what you've, you've proven with your drilling, um, but um, with what we've got, we've mostly got 50 years. Okay. But... Um, with what there is in that area and the tenements that we have, which we haven't drilled, you know, there's most probably uh, triple or quadruple that in, in the mine life of, of this. So this um, this uh, ore resource um, will be mined for a very long time. Yeah, okay. And you previous did you previously work for one of the, like, environmental, uh, like, surveying companies? Uh, I, I worked for um, a, a consulting company yeah. um, called Snowden. Okay. And uh, my role in Snowden, I was part of their executive team, um, but I was looking after um, the technologies that, uh, the mining technologies, um, and Snowden had created some very good mining technologies and had implemented them in the, in the, the big companies, so the Rio Tintos, the BHPs. And the Vales. So I, I spent a lot of time in a plane going yeah. to visit these um, different countries and, and work with these different companies. Yeah, okay. And what kind of things did you learn working with so many different people from different places? Uh, well, that, that's a very good question because um, I, I think that um, somebody that thinks that they can work with every country in the world, um, I think it would be challenging. Um, I, I find it. Um, very good and easy to get on with people in Brazil. Like, um, I like their, uh, their their temperament, and I like like the way that they do business. How do they do business? Um, uh, well, it, it's a, it's a matter of um, uh, creating a credibility and a friendship, um, and you know it's it's not as hard nosed, I think, as, as some of the other other countries. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by hard nosed? Um, I, I think there's a more genuine uh, side to to doing business. It's not all not just all about um, you know you've got to do it for half the price and 
um, and what have you, they, they have a respect for um, a good technology and they have an understanding of um, what that technology costs. Yeah, okay, mm. cool. And wh- what, have you, what are some of the other countries you like, you've enjoyed working with? Oh, look, I've, I've still got a company based in China, so I have a, have a private company that, that I own um, and I have, a, um, I, I have staff over there um, and um, I, I, um, I enjoy um, going there and working with them. So, so in China, I, my private company, we, we work with the large mining companies doing the quality assurance on a lot of the equipment that's made for the mining companies. Yeah, okay. And so, um, yeah, I've had a, um, a good relationship. I have um, a relationship with some of the senior executives in the different Chinese companies. How do you go about even establishing a company like that over there? Like, Is it like Indonesia where you have to have someone uh, native to that country as a citizen to do business with and they own it, like your part ownership and stuff like that? Uh, no, but it's a good question. Um, what I, I originally went to China um, because I was working with uh, Rio Tinto and I developed these robotic processes and the Chinese were um, interested because um, the, what, had, what had happened in setting up these robotic processes for actually um, Rio Tinto and then BHP, um, it gave a, a, a surety of the assay and so there's a there's a term called load port final which means that the final assay is trusted at the load port and so at the load port in Australia uh, prior to having a load port final agreement you would most probably um, only get paid between 80 and 90 percent and then you would get paid the rest after an umpire uh, at the other end wherever the discharge port was um, had tested to prove what the assay that you um, it was the, the same as yours, and so and is assay a different word for like the stuff that assay assay is the uh, the the tested value of the ore. Okay. So okay. So when yeah. um so when you sell, especially when you sell iron ore, um you uh, it comes under a contract that, that where you um you have a specific mm-hmm. um. Uh, grade of of your iron, so the the spot price for iron is sixty two percent FE, and then an agreed price on the um, the different deleterious elements because um, <coughs> it's the deleterious elements that um, will will damage um, or, or create bad steel. So you have to have an ag- an agreement where you don't supply too much of that. If you do, it has to be extracted. Uh, at the steel making end, and you have to pay a penalty. Yeah. Right? Okay. So it's essentially the grade of it. That's correct. That. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what kind of things get in there that makes the bad steel? Is it like dirt? Is it uh, like well, other it's, minerals? It's 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 um, mainly um, phosphorus, uh, alumina, um, okay. silica, sulfur, um, things like titanium. So depending upon you know, so if if you've got a lot of sulphur, then you um, may uh, um, need to, at the steel mill end, uh, install a, like a sulphur wash plant, which is quite an expensive um, exercise. So depending upon what you're, um, what you're able to produce and supply, 
if you're low in these deleterious elements, um, you'll actually get paid a, a premium. Yeah, okay. Cool. And what a um, <coughs> cool, also, can we just put your phone on the ground so it doesn't vibrate on here? Is oh, that right? Right. yeah. Thanks, mate. Um, shipping. In terms of dealing with like such huge quantities for shipping, what are like the most important lessons that you've learned along that journey of dealing with all these different countries shipping huge quantities? Well, basically, um, I, it does come back to this um, moisture level. And um, there was a, um, a, a TV show a long time ago, much probably, um, you know, before your time, uh, it's called The Ships of Shame, and um, uh, it was it was an Australian show, and it sort of started to show the um, you know, when the standards were quite bad, and and um, and usually it was this um, moisture which was, and, and so a number of ships were lost based on um, the, the and so um, uh, shipping um, and and this um, this TML. Um, is important for shipping. Um, the One of the, the biggest things you have to be able to do is keep your loading process going because you will usually sign, sign a contract um, with a steel mill and they'll send a ship. And part of that contract is that when the ship arrives, it has to get loaded. And if the loading isn't ready, then you start paying for the rental of the ship and the, the salaries of the people on the ship. That's that's called demurrage. That's expensive. <laughs> yes, it is. So so you have to keep your production ready for the ships that are arriving. Yeah, okay. Um, or, or then you're losing some of your profit margin by actually having to pay this um, this penalty. And is there any, like, issues that you've ever had with different payment uh, systems across countries? Like is well, Western Union, for example, if somebody just gives you a Western Union bank account, are you like, yeah, we trust that? Uh, look, that, that's really, um, I, I'd say, uh, there, there's, I suppose there's been a lot of different issues with the, with the different types of payment systems. Um, but what I'm more um, uh, experienced at was um, the agreements. So um, there, there used to be... a, a, a a price struck, and that was a contract price, and then you supplied to that, and that was done after a, a quite a, a, a protracted negotiation between the steel mills and uh, and and the um, iron ore suppliers. But um, um, now we we work with these indexes, these on these spot price markets, and um, is that similar to like how gold and silver has their spot price, or well, yeah, it's. Uh, it's it's an index like uh, any other index, and and the index fluctuates based on um, how the market is going. So uh, there was a time when iron ore um, uh, went went to a very low um, price. Uh, its, its index went low, and that was because there was an oversupply in the market. Um, the interesting thing about what we will produce in our mine is that um, the the, the market, being the world market, will never be able to get enough of what we have to produce. So um, uh, we'll, we'll always be sold out because our, our what we'll produce is a lot higher grade than the spot. Yeah, okay, well, that's great. Um, 
And in terms of this huge worldwide discussion all about moving away from fossil fuels, what's your like take on it? Well, um, yeah, I think we're we're lucky in the in the way that um, in South Australia uh, we we have a lot of um, renewable um, power generation, and and so our um, we we will need power and we need a, a transmission line to our mine that will be supplied by this renewables all of the wind generation um, and and the different solar um, projects that are going on. Is that because they're the closest sources? Um, it, it's uh, it also comes back to this you know the, the ESG term that's getting around now, and so. A steel mill um, need you know uh, needs to you know you have the scope one, scope two, scope three. So we are a scope three supplier to a to a steel mill. Mm-hmm. So if we have the right credentials, um, uh, we we should be able to demand a premium based on those credentials. So and one of those is that you're using the renewables. Yeah. And is that and when you get those pr- credentials, is there you subsidised at all from the government for being higher in the grade, or is it just no? So no. why does why are these ESG targets so important? Then because I've heard this come up more and more ESG targets. Yeah. Um, and then I've heard some people say they're complete bullshit, and it's just like the government trying to force the market to change. Um, um look, I think uh, for us. Um, we've built or we're designing this mine based on what are um, the uh, I suppose the most e- economical means, and and so it's just a very nice coincidence that we have um, a renewable power source, which is part of that. Now, one of the things that I think we we've been able to um, uh, to look at is that if um, if we are going to use the power transmission then we will use it for nearly everything. So we can even put our mining trucks onto an electric catenary. So, okay, so, so they so can be like recharged? Well, like the Glenelg tram. Yeah, okay. Okay, so you imagine a mining truck. So that, that happens in different parts of the world. So wow. so we can we can do those sort of things. We can um, we can take conveyors into the pit. They're all, they're all electric powered back to this, this source and really reduce our requirement for diesel. Okay, and in terms of renewables and what stacks up the best, what renewables are like? Are you pretty knowledgeable about all the different? Oh look, types? I've I've been around the world to have a look at um, different renewable power sources, and um, you know I I drove up to Port Augusta the other day and I saw the molten salt um, Port Augusta. Um, what's, the, that, what's the molten salt? Well, it's the where all of the the, there's a there's a an array of mirrors that point to a central point that um, which is where they're they're melting a um, uh, like a salt compound which um, then produces steam to generate power. So that that is um, just as you you come into Port Augusta. Okay, and is that pretty good in terms of like cost and output? Of well, it, it um it it is a um, I think it, it it works while the sun shines. 
Yeah. But the thing about having that is that the um, the fact that it's heating this thing up means that there is still um, a residual heat that that allows the turbines to run when the sun isn't shining. So so I, I like the look of that one. Um, what what you know we we see with this um, this big battery that we've got in South Australia and what I what I've seen in other parts of the world is uh, it's a term called peak shaving. So um, uh, you know you have you have um, this this line that's showing the power use for a city different times of the day. But everybody gets home at four thirty at night, turns the air conditioner on, um, boils the, boils the kettle and whatever. You, and you get this peak, and so different things, including batteries, but also there's these vanadium flow um, style batteries, which are are a, a different type of um, technology. They can then come on to meet that demand, and and that's instead of the peak, you shave the peak off because you bring on more power. So that's what the what the peak shaving is about. So I. I've seen these, and I, I think some of these will will um, be part of um, what, what will happen in the future. Yeah. Okay. So these big battery technology. What's up, Bior? Uh, one, one of the things that I um, I suppose uh, in my life has has been that um, my my family have been in South Australia since nineteen forty nine. Yeah. Okay. And um, <coughs> I. Um, I got involved with a, a newspaper, I resurrected a newspaper um, when COVID hit. And um, after I did that, I started to study my family and I um, this newspaper was in Broken Hill. And yeah. it's a, What's the newspaper called? Uh, the Barra Daily Truth, which is the union-owned newspaper. Yeah. So um, the, the handy thing about um, me helping that newspaper was that um, because they're owned by the union, they they couldn't approach the mining companies for money. Whereas I'm a mining executive, and the, the mining executives are all basically um, a group of mates. And so I was able to um, approach BHP and, and Rio and others. Um, and and so that, that that's another story. But the uh, the thing that I I started to look into my family, and I I recently found that. Um, uh, at my great great grandfather level, one of his brothers had a son, who who actually had um, was instrumental in starting the other newspaper in Broken Hill, and I only found out that recently. So I thought, well, there you go. Like I just thought I'd help these guys. I had this interest in, well, actually, my interest in Broken Hill was the fact that um, the newspaper was an institution had been there for 112 years, and you have a 70% um, uh, mine retired mine worker sort of population there. Um, and so uh, a newspaper was part of their habit. And when you break a habit, you, you can create uh, problems, including mental health problems. And I, I didn't think it was the right time to have a mental health problem when you just had a COVID problem coming. So, sure. so, um, so that's why I helped them raise the money to resurrect that newspaper. And, and then when I found out about somebody a few generations ago that was, was part of my family, um, I thought, okay, well, maybe that's <laughs> part of why I got this interest in newspapers. It was, it was sort of in the, it was in, the, in the DNA, in the genes. Got a bit of Murdoch in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, that was Murdoch's newspaper that he, he started. 
Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah well, it, was a, it was a Murdoch newspaper. So. I mean, I feel like everything's a Murdoch newspaper now, though. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, good on him. Done well for himself, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so my um, my family um, were um, uh, saddlers. Oh, yeah. And they, they came out. And if you can understand, the saddlery was obviously a, a fine artisan craft that, um, you know, before before people started making cars and um, uh, they came out from from England and um, established uh, saddlery businesses in in um, in Adelaide. And any saddles that have passed down through generations that? Uh, well, I haven't really found any any of the saddles that they made yet, but I do know that there was a saddlery at two ninety one Unley Road, mm-hmm. and uh, that was our family saddlery. Um, and that would have been going. I suppose just eighteen um, nineties through to sometime uh, early sort of nineteen hundreds. Um, yep. uh, I know that obviously my my family through my grandmother came to Broken Hill, which is why I was born in Broken Hill. But um, obviously, uh, two other family members before her had come to Broken Hill, but also that my grandmother's family had been in Borough. So, ah, oh, Borough's beautiful. Oh, Have yeah. you been to Borough, Bill? Not really. So you need to go for a trip. It is the most quaint, beautiful like town. Oh, the the um, it's gorgeous. Uh, there, you have to look at the the Cornish um, technologies that you know. So the Cornish brought over um, technologies from uh, from what they knew, and so the way that the underground stopes and the woodwork was was, was based on what they knew. But also these large steam uh, lifts that they that they made. So if you see these, what do you mean by steam lifts? I haven't seen what are these well, steam lifts. If you see, um, uh, I think Caponda, um, uh, Barra, and other places, you'll see a very large um, rock chimney. Yeah, okay. and that that's actually how you get the steam to escape. But you create the steam in a boiler, and you you're able to. Um, uh, drive a cylinder, and that cylinder uh, is connected to the buckets that are brought up, bring the ore up from underground. Oh wow! Um, and there's a ver- there's actually a, a restored one in Borough. Um, um, what you do is you go to Borough, and for a very small fee, you buy buy the keys to Borough, and that allows you to go to these different places, and o- open up these gates and go in and go and have a look at the the restored areas in. Um, so. Um, but what what I like about Borough is it is actually five towns, five hamlets, and um, and so you, you've uh, you've got you know so you've got these um, crazy Welsh names and you've got Irish and you've got other um, you know the Cornish and what have you. So yeah, I've got heaps of Cornish in my blood. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, the other people that you mentioned before, I think, are all, all um, Cornish as well. Yeah. Yeah, and Scottish. Yeah, well, on my father's side, he he was uh, he immigrated from Scotland, mm. so um, uh, yeah, my, my middle name's Bruce, so um, Bruce, <laughs> but I'm named after yeah, King Robert the Bruce. So, yeah, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, and coming back to that's very cool. I will go check that out. To be honest, like yeah. that is a as a cool cultural experience. I didn't know we had that. Um, shout out to the Adelaide set. Support local, go out to borough, check that out. Yeah. Um, 
In terms of ESG targets, what are some of the other ESG targets that are like a thing? Oh, look, um, I think that, uh, you know, some of them, I think I think they are going towards the extreme. Mm-hmm. But really all we can do is uh, work on a, um, you know, because of the way that this is set up, we have to be a good supplier under ESG um, to actually um, be able to deal with the steel mills that require us to be scope three. Yeah, okay. um, and really uh, the removal of diesel power in, uh, in our whole mining chain is most probably the, the greatest way that we, we can do that. And so it's just the, the application of, um, of uh, power through the, from the renewables through a transmission line um, the other way that I think that we are um, uh, working on um, uh, uh, being being economical in an ESG sense is that um, if you wanted to design a, um, a, a process plant uh, to process this, this iron ore, um, you could do it in such a way that you actually wasted quite a lot of water and um, that water would then... You know, go back into the ground or go into a tailings dam or whatever. Um, but we intend to filter um, the, the the stuff that doesn't come out as the concentrate comes out as the tailings, mm. and we intend to filter that and reclaim the water. Yeah, so, like so filter the wastewater and do what with it? Well, then we can reuse it. So oh, we're for just the same process. For the same process. Oh, yeah. cool. Yep. Yeah, so, good. so that that I think is um is is another. Way of um, you know being a being a um, uh, uh, what do you call it eco friendly or or yeah. just um, it's, doing it's, the targets. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of like transitioning to the renewables compared to the diesel, like what is because obviously the threshold to make renewables the predominant factor in society will be when it's cheaper, right? And how does it stack up at the moment? Uh, the diesel generated power to the renewable generated power for something of that scale. Well, something of that scale because we, um, when, when you do the feasibility of a mining project, you have to check the price of both. Mm. And um, and we thought that the uh, the diesel guys and the and the uh, renewable guys had gone down to the pub and had a beer together because they, they both came up with the price about the same. Oh, and, really? Yeah. Oh, but, that's but, good. But the thing is that. Um, but of course, well, why would you use diesel if the other one's the same price? So that's um, and, and so from an economic sense, it also makes sense to go this way. Yeah. Okay. And I guess the only reason you would use diesel is if you had a bunch of equipment. Like, do you guys hire your equipment, or do you tend to buy the equipment? Because if it's a fifty-year mine, like, well, what, how does that work? Well, and, and th- that's a very good question because you you start up a mine in stages. And so when you're trying to get a mine off the ground, what you're trying to do is take um, a, lot of your, uh, a lot of money off your capital balance sheet. So, um, and things like mining equipment, you can lease, a ma- take a maintained lease. Now, um, if that gets you away, then you can gradually use your revenue 
to um, to build up your capital to actually buy the equipment and and remove. So everything that you remove from uh, the maintained lease gives you a better profit on your on your opex. Yeah. Okay. Is that a startup strategy, or do you find that the like the real big dogs do the exact same thing? I mean, are you because um, you guys are more like medium size, right? Well, we we um, we will start small because we can see that um, for what we want to do, um, it, it will be easier to raise the capital we need to start small. Um, we will uh, get a decent margin on on what we produce, mm-hmm. and that will give us a, um, a a capital balance to start to most probably make ourselves bigger. So expand and we. We we will start small, but we want to expand rapidly. Yeah. Okay. And what kind of capital is needed to to start a mine? Oh, <laughs> uh, look, it's most probably I can't really go into what our what our capital is. Um, yeah. Okay. That's most probably something that um, is sort of market sensitive to us. Okay. Um, but most most people that understand mining would know that it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, if you have a look at um, so both um, Gordon Toll and I were um, uh, involved in um, the uh, well, when when Fortescue started. And I was with the mining consultants, and Gordon actually was the director of Fortescue. Um, uh, they they needed six billion oh. to get away, and um, they they did that successfully. Um, That's huge. So how do you even go about getting this kind of money? Well, there there are different places that you can get money from, and uh, the money that they they thought they were going to get money from uh, steel mills, but they actually got it from junk bonds. Um, so, and when you junk bonds, to well, me? well, this is a um, this is just a bond in the US where you have to pay quite a large um, interest rate for. Yeah. Um, but if you and and one of the one of the ways of doing it is you actually loan a lot more than you need because you have to service that loan <laughs> so as you get started but the the important thing is that if you get if you get raise money that way getting rid of that debt is is most probably foremost in your mind um the way of if we start smaller we have a still hundreds of millions of dollars to to build this thing um we can create a um an agreement with some of the steel mills who really do want what we've got, and um, and these uh, are Australian steel mills, international steel mills. Um, they're mainly so the, in the in the steel industry, you have sophisticated um, steel making in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, Japan, Korea, those sort of places, and then you have um, uh, steel making in, in China, um, and the steel making in China they. Uh, use you know lower grades like the stuff in Western Australia, but it's the it's a little bit to do with Japan and Korea, but a lot to do with the Middle East and North Africa. Because you have that higher grade, we have the higher grade, and they have um, the gas and the fuels, whereas the Chinese have the, the coal, and so they they can they can make steel with a most uh, a more efficient way. And their steel making process requires the type of high grades that we produce. So um, part of part of ESG as well, like in terms of being, hey, we're using less energy because coal uses more, and uh, or is uh, the, well, that the, a different metric? 
the the when it comes to steel making, where where the ESG counts is our uh, magnetite concentrates because magnetite is exothermic. So and you're gonna have to explain what that <laughs> means. <laughs> so basically, it burns itself. Yeah. Okay. okay. So it's a fuel in itself. Yeah. And so, um, and because we, if we go back to the, the discussion on deleterious elements, yeah, because we don't have those high levels of deleterious elements, um, we're creating a very low emissions when it goes into the steel mill. Yeah. Okay. And we're also being exothermic, creating some of the of the power of the steel mill. So we we actually give the steel mill a, a, a greater efficiency and a very low emission. Um, from from the stuff that we that what we produce and is that and and you need the gas technology to do that process? Um, is that how that works? Uh, well, the the gas technologies um, and what what we are seeing is that these gas technologies may be um, uh, overtaken by hydrogen technologies, hydrogen powered. Question about that. Because I had Ian on here, and I don't know if you listened to the Ian podcast, but he said hydrogen is a load of crock. <laughs> he said it takes, uh, what was it? It was saying like seven units of energy to produce one unit of energy, and it's only held up by subsidies. Is uh, Well, I, I, I'd agree. Um, he has a good view on, um, he likes any renewable as long as it isn't attracting a subsidy. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, what we and I suppose we know that right now hydrogen isn't mature. Okay. Um, and uh, um, you know I can remember when I had a I had an iPhone the size of a shoebox sort of thing. Yeah. Um, things change. So um, uh, I, I also trust that Ian is a very smart scientist and knows what he's talking about. Um, but yeah, I suppose we've just got to wait wait and see. But okay, uh, but that looks like it's. The sunrise industry, yes, of steel mill powered. Yes, it is. It is. Um, if the, if if that gets away, and I and I think, um, especially here in South Australia, they they're also um, uh, looking into that um, yeah. at great depth. They're looking at that Wyala, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about nuclear? What do you What are your thoughts on nuclear? Um, I don't really have a problem with nuclear. I think that. Um, uh, that it, it's it really is the solution for uh, all of these people that are, are green that that complain about everything else like coal and what have you. Well, then nuclear must be the solution. Yeah. Okay. Well, heard that before. Deb, <laughs> <laughs> we've heard that a lot on this show, haven't we? Yeah. Um, I want someone to come on and tell me why it's bad. So I keep hearing all these good things. Yeah. I don't know why it's not being done. People were just saying it's the economics, but then I have yeah. experts like you and others come on and tell me that it's actually the, the, the balance sheet works out. Well, yeah, it, it's, um, you know, I, I, I suppose it's, it's, it's one of these things where, um, you know, there, there's most probably things that we have to wait until a generation dies, you know what I mean? You know, it's sort of something that does go back generations um, and the other uses uh, for uh, uranium, but um, uh, definitely as as a power source, um, yeah, I, I can't see any problem with it. Yeah, cool. What's the day in the life of being a CEO of mine? Like, what are you actually doing? Uh, 
Well, basically, with with our um, with this um, feasibility study that we're doing at the moment, um, uh, I I suppose for the um, the time that I've been a, a um, an executive leader of, of different groups, I find that um, if you can work with your people to empower them, um, but not not harangue them, just I um, mean harangue them. Well, you know, if you if you want to go to your people and say do your work or, or whatever, I don't think that works. I think what you do is you say, you know, that, uh, you, you give them the confidence that they know what they're doing and that they will do the work, and you're just there when when they may need some help with a decision. Right? Okay, they don't they don't have to come to you for the decision. You're the, you're the executive that has the power to. Um, approve that decision, but you need to be able to work with them so that um, together you make that decision. And if you if you um, work with your people and um, allow them to um, and trust them to go and do that sort of thing, then what you're doing is, um, uh, you know, I, I suppose you call it a servant manager type role where you um, are, are just trying to empower your people to do do the work that um uh that they do well and 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 so it's sort of like um it's not like oh, i was wondering about this and you go it's approved no it's more like we have a discussion about what is is this the best way and we come up with yes that's the solution then we both agree and then we are able to get something done so that is the way that i i work with my my senior staff and um, how do you cultivate that kind of culture among senior staff well, I, I suppose you you have to build that trust to start with. You know, you um, uh, it, uh, I think um, staff get to know you reasonably quickly um, because you're not um, you're not um, jumping up and down and, and beating your chest and saying you know why isn't this done? But it's sort of trying to uh, empower them uh, to uh, when they have these queries that they can talk to you and then together you can make these these decisions so um, that works well um, so we have um, a number of different uh, very skilled uh, types within the organization but then we then use um, different consultants um, we have a very uh, very strong focus on using Adelaide based people or South Australian based people um, we um, we don't we don't really need to uh, go out for very much outside of this state to um, to be able to, to, to do all the feasibility work that we're doing. Yeah, okay. Because we just have a lot of mining peoples here? Uh, we don't have enough. Um, but um, when, you, when you're in the market that I'm in, um, you eventually uh, find them. And once you find good people, um, they usually know good people. Yep. And so... Um, yeah, so I think um, within the market, um, we're most probably using South Australia's best in, in a number of different disciplines, um, and they're doing that, that work, work very well for us. Yeah, cool. And what kind of other... Have you always worked with iron ore, or have you... What's your oh, range of... <laughs> I've worked in a very, very large um, copper mine in, in Bougainville, in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, okay. I uh, did, did three years up there. Um, that that was great. Um, boy from Broken Hill, where you get nine inches a year rainfall to 
you know, Broken Hill to Bougainville, you get nine inches a day. Is that really its name, Bougainville? Bougainville, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> so it was actually named after a um, an explorer, and his name was Bougainville. Where it's was he from? Was he from Australia? <laughs> <laughs> was no, he a Bougain? I think he was French. <laughs> and, okay. and, but, um, but the thing is, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's not it's not a um, named after an area that's full of Bougains. <laughs> No, fair enough. Okay, yeah. so that's pretty cool. Going to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah. What's so it like I, there? Well, um, I, I I liked it. I um, I I learnt the language. They speak um, Melanesian pidgin, um, so it wasn't a very hard language to to learn. And I, um, I found that that was if you prepared to learn the language, you would um, assimilate. With these people, and um, and so I had a responsibility in the mine. Um, I had a large um, workforce working for me, and um, they um, I was able to get on quite well with them. I um, uh, uh, ventured into the jungle. Um, I'd have a few of these guys watching my back, but it was it was a great a great adventure up there. Um, um, you know, those places are just islands that were formed by volcanoes. And um, and so um, if you were driving to work from from the ocean and you're going up to the mine every morning on a clear day, you would see a an active volcano with um, with the, uh, the the steam and the and the smoke coming out of it. Really? Yes. Wow. What was that like? Oh, very spectacular. Yeah. yeah. Good sunsets. Yes. Yeah. Um, definitely. Um, well, you you. Um, so basically, the the weather pattern was that the um, um, you know the day started dry and then as as it as it heated up, the um, clouds would form over the over the ocean and then come onto the land and then and drop their water. So it rained yeah. like every day. Every day. Oh my god! If it didn't rain for a day, it'd be a drought. Basically, <laughs> yeah. you know. but uh, yeah, but fair. yeah. And yeah, what was that mine? It was called Bougainville Copper, so it was, it copper, was, yeah, it yeah. was part of Rio Tinto. It was the copper mining process, like dramatically different from the kind of mining process we talked about today. Um, the mining process that we're doing has a milling um, process, and the copper has a milling process as well. Because generally, what what you're trying to do is you're trying to grind down your ore to liberate whatever. Um, uh, chemicals or, or minerals uh, from that ore um, and away from um, the deleterious elements. And so uh, with what we mine, um, it's, I think, simpler because uh, you, you're just using a, a magnetic um, process after you've ground it to a, a size where the, where the, um, the iron is liberated. Um, with, with copper, you're using other like flotation processes to... Um, remove the copper but you, you've got to grind it down first so um the grinding is similar the separation is different yeah um, okay but uh but, but definitely a um it, they had a big big plant up there they were it was quite big production and um from the and I'm, I'm not a geologist but what what i understand about that place was that we were mining a volcano which was a which was a x number of hundreds of million years of years old and that this volcano um, had more gold at the top and so they mined the gold, uh, created a good cash flow that allowed them <coughs> to build the infrastructure so then when they got down to the copper, they were able to, to process. 
Yeah, wow. Oh, good on them. Have you heard about <laughs> what's happening in the Congo with all the cobalt? Uh, oh, look, I've, I've followed it a little bit and, um, you know, those, I think those guys in the Congo have, um, uh, have always, always had, a, had it uh, from different, uh, different groups from around the world that have come there to try to exploit them. Yeah. Because um, I was listening um, on Joe Rogan. And he was saying, or the guy he was saying on said that there's heaps of child labour and stuff like that. And yep. what it came down to was that nobody's taking responsibility for like who is uh, like the one to improve the conditions. Well, um, you, you'll see that there's a cobalt project just across from where we are. up. So we're on the road to Broken Hill um, out of town called O'Leary. There's a cobalt project near us and it's getting a lot of um, interest from um uh career and places like that because it is it's a little bit like uh, blood diamonds where uh, you can you can buy diamonds that were mined in Australia and you know that nobody was exploited um, and I think it's the same uh, with with um, these rare earth in, uh, minerals um, where where um, um, in Australia they can see that uh, you know we're politically stable um, we uh, enjoy a very good um, work life and we don't really exploit people. And so... Just uh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little bit. No. Um, just because you said yeah. really. Um, yeah, okay, good. No, that's fair enough. And do we have a pretty large reserve or ground depository of cobalt? Uh, uh, my My understanding of what they're looking at is that it's it's not as large as what you know. It, it's not a multi-generational thing like what we've got, but they have a um, they have a uh, well. I'd, I'd go back a step and describe the area around Broken Hill as being the most spectacular geological Disneyland in the world. The the minerals um, that have come out of what is the line of load, and um, I don't know whether Ian spoke about his involvement with CBH, but basically it was his hard work to prove up new resources um, that, that actually founded that new mining company. Um, wow. So, um, Another thing to, yeah. to Ian's list of things. So Every time we hear about this, man, he's just, there's another <laughs> thing he's done. Like, uh, uh, he's a busy man. He's a busy man. Absolutely. But yeah, so um, uh, from... from yeah, you know, this is another thing that's just occurring uh, within within that area. And um, um, now I, I um, I'm, I'm actually have uh, some people writing a book about the pubs of Broken Hill. Oh yeah, and it's the pubs of Broken Hill and District. And so then you start to understand how the whole area, including Borough, was formed because you know they were mining in Borough late 1840s sort of onwards um, and, and Broken Hill was only founded in 1883 but there was a town near Broken Hill called Silverton where they were already mining um, there. And so um, there are, if you look at Broken Hill as the centre now, every road that goes out from Broken Hill has a pub at the end of it. And so um, we're writing a book about these pubs and uh, Broken Hill had 70 pubs. 70. 
70 pups. Um, Boys like their beers, didn't they? Oh, well, maybe they didn't trust the water back then, you know. Maybe, maybe that's yeah, what they, they had to do. But um, of these um, these 70 pubs, um, 38 pubs were built in 1885. So it was The town was founded in 1883 and there were some pubs prior to Broken Hill that were Silverton. There were a dozen pubs out at Silverton. And so um, some of the pubs in Silverton were brought in on jinkers. What's a jinker? Well, a jinker is like a very large um, flat trailer yeah, okay. that you, you put it underneath a pub and jack it up and then you pull it with bullocks. And, and these are stone, yes, stone pubs? Yes, yeah, yeah, oh, my God. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so well, they'll be stone or they'll be wooden iron with some parts of stone yeah, okay. and they would bring these to different... Um, so to, to, you know, and, and so uh, there are stories around Broken Hill about a pub in this direction, being taken outside of Broken Hill to another place outside of Broken Hill because that area had finished mining and this area they were going to start. So so wherever there was a um, wherever there was a mine, there was a pub. Who needs a prefab when you can just drag the other pub? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think a, a prefab was sort of, was really um, uh, thought of back then, you know. Oh, People, definitely not. But, um, yeah, so 1885 was the year that BHP was listed. And um, uh, I I have a lot of respect for um, Charles Rasp and his history, and um, he was the the guy that actually um, decided to peg this what was co- the Broken Hill. The guys in Silverton knew that there was this thing called the Broken Hill. They just called it the, oh, over there. There's the Broken Hill because it's a hill that looks like it's broken. This is this massive outcrop of of um, of uh, sulfides and what have you. But um, uh, he um, had a, a business education when he came out from Europe and, um, and so he, was, he came out, like a lot of people, um, for the clear air. You know, they, um, they were coming out of these smoggy countries and, and coming into, um, into our wide land and the clear air and he came out and, and he thought, well, there's something going on here so he and a group from the station he's working on pegged it and um, and because he was smart and he understood business that's why he was behind the listing of BHP hmm. so 1885 38 pubs were built um, and yeah it, it got up to 70 and the last pub in Broken Hill till this day was built in 1900 wow so um, some of the pubs have been refurbished and quite well. One, of, one there's one pub. There's a there's a, a, a friend of mine that, that owns a pub in the centre of town that um, uh, he spent a lot of money to refurbish it. And it's a it's a grand, a very grand um, building, and and he's brought it back to life. Um, but uh, but no new pubs, not not in uh, not not for what's that 123 years. I kind of love that though. Yeah. I yep. love history and like the heritage of place. I think it's it's like a shame that we're knocking down like even on North Terrace there were some beautiful buildings that just got knocked down and there's oh. nothing nothing grand there now. Well, there's the Adelaide Club and the Lady Adelaide Club. They're, they're yeah, like, what I mean is Queen in Adelaide those particular order. locations. Uh, not yes. not the street yep. in general. The street in general is, is divine. Yeah. Yep. But I mean like even the baths yep. where the the car park is between the Benith and Hall and the right. law, law yeah. building. There used to be these huge baths or yep. 
on the corner of Pulteney and Rundle where the car park is. There yes. used to be this huge divine building. Yeah. And it's just demolished. Yeah, look, uh, there are some good books out about um, what Adelaide looked like. And um, and and I also um, believe that um, some of Adelaide was built on Broken Hill money because, um, you know, Broken Hill was, was the booming, you know, the booming city of Australia um, back at that stage, I think. Yeah, okay. Borough made some money out of Burra. Um, um, the guy behind Burra was a Morfitt, so you see everything That's now. Uh, you see Morfitt um, everywhere. But, uh, oh, right. That's uh, the last name? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, um, but, yeah, look, I, I, I believe that we need to be responsible in recording history. Um, Definitely. Yes, we'll forget it. I, w- I was looking at a, uh, a thing on Facebook the other day and these people were talking about it and they were saying, well, this... In 1910, this is in Broken Hill, this was a store that somebody's taken over and that had the sign. So they painted over the sign. and So all of that history is gone. And, and um, um, so, yeah, but, um, this book company that I own is writing this book about pubs. It's writing the history of the CWA in Broken Hill. So that's, that's pretty much completed. We're about to get that printed. Wait, did you say you have a book company? Yes, yes. So this is this this pub book is being is being uh, being written by some people that I know in Broken Hill. I own the book company. Um, like I a share. publisher or like the uh, well, yeah, we are the publisher, and um, and we use a South Australian um, book publishing house. Uh, and I was actually there today. It's part of my the day in the life, and I'm, I'm a COO, not a CEO. So yeah, okay. The, uh, at the, the chief operating officer, but. Um, yeah, I, I went and saw those those guys today because um, they will produce the books. I've already produced uh, a couple of books, and uh, but this year we'll produce another three. Awesome. Um, and the, and they're all about um, recording the history in Broken Hill. And right now, um, there's a generation that are in their seventies and eighties, and you know they're living longer, and and they're all coming together on these big Facebook groups, and they're yearning for the history. Um, you know, as they grew up, and so we're we're writing some of the books about that, and I, I share the royalties of the books with the people that write the books, and so um, yeah, it's all it's all just to um, be able to uh, have this, um, yeah, to record this history. Good on you. That is very important. Yeah, good on you. That's a cool. So how did that begin? You just had a passion for it, and you were like, "Let me do it." Yeah, I thought um, uh, I thought the historians of Broken Hill needed a hand. Um, you know, uh, historians is an important part, and I don't, you know, they they just don't have the time to do what I'm doing. And this pub book has been very well researched. I mean, really well researched. Like we have the list of uh, licensees of every pub <laughs> from from when it started. Wow, um, what records? So so, um, but I, I think now when you write a book, you will write a, you write a book which is. The story of these pubs, uh, instead of filling it up with all these lists of licensees, you stick that into a database on the website, which has some sort of QR code. And you can buy the book and you can go and have a look. Because we've also um, interviewed all of the old publicans, so there are there are publicans in Broken Hill that have been publicans for forty years. Um, there's a guy sitting at the front bar of the junction since 1964. Um, leaning on the front bar of the junction, he's kept it up, and and he um, 
he's told me that um, he could have bought the pub three times the money he's given them sitting there. So he's been there since 1964. Yeah, right? incredible. Um, so so we interviewed him. Yeah, because he's been to every pub in Broken Hill playing darts. <laughs> so we have that. We have a video, and so those things can go onto the website. You buy the book. You can see all. You can watch all of these stories, and so. Um, yeah, so we've interviewed, I think we've got about eight of the long-term uh, publicans in Broken Hill and, and we've sort of um, recorded them you know, for, for posterity. I think it'd be rude not to ask what's your favourite beer. <laughs> uh, look, I... Um, too, so, po- so too political? <laughs> no, no, well, it, well, Broken Hill was brought up on West End. Yeah, okay. Um, I, am, I am friends... Um, uh, with Tim Cooper, yeah, uh, and I do love uh, both both the pale ale and the sparkling the Coopers, um, but um, yeah, great. Uh, but you know, West End, you know, so West End actually owned a lot of these pubs in Broken Hill and had its own breweries in Broken Hill. Oh wow! So um, so not only was it uh, South Australian, but it was a uh, it was definitely a Broken Hill, um, Broken Hill beer. But uh, but yeah, so the West End. The yeah. West End, the tried and true. Yes. The yeah. old Westie. Yeah, no, Good stuff. Um, is there any other little or secret companies that you you, you care to <laughs> disclose right now? Uh, <laughs> what other cool projects are you doing? Oh, uh, look, um, I, I think the – I, I talked a little bit about my, my company in China. What You've got to understand that um, – there's there's QA and then there's what I call executive QA or quality assurance. And so quality assurance is you have an agent in Australia and he says, I've got QA people in China and they're gonna we're gonna build this thing for you and blah blah blah. But the the big mining company they're working for also wants somebody to watch their QA people. And so if you wanted to know uh, so one story, um uh so we're building Long wall, long wall underground coal mining equipment, um, which is a a, um, a a device where you have these very large um, what they're called roof supports, but they look like a big accelerator pedal. They're like this. Um, each one of them is about sixty-seven ton, mm. right? And so one of these fits onto the back of a semi trailer, and so Wild. and we I think uh, is it twenty twenty one, we built about five hundred of them for the Queensland coal mines and we um, we worked on other parts of the, the long wall drivetrain, um, the way that the long wall works. And, and so uh, the roof supports is a very important part of it. And uh, my guys, not only are we watching the, the quality of the weld and, and the way these things are being manufactured, but when they're finished and they've got this, global mining company's name on the side of it, they're craned onto the back of this truck and tied down with nothing more than, you know, small ropes. And um, and all you can all you can imagine is um some poor Chinaman on a on a bicycle. This truck comes around the corner and the thing slides off and squashes him and um and this this global mining company's name is on the piece of equipment. And so yeah. and so we um over and above all of the other QA, we keep an eye on um, making sure that everything goes out safely 
uh, from the Beijing factory to get to the Tangent port. And so, so with that, that's one of the stories. Another one is... When that happened? Well, uh, they tried. They it? tried to make it happen. They, there's, you know, it just, you know, every truck driver is different. Every they, they want to try and cut corners. They want to get away. They want to make their bonus. And yeah. Um. And so we, yeah, we just wouldn't let this guy leave. Um. Uh. You know, you have to have very large chains with ratchets to hold hold these huge pieces of equipment on the back of these semi trailers. So yeah, because um, probably in China wouldn't be one China man that. No, squishing. You, you, might, you might be squishing might squish twenty. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, we we look at things like we make sure that like when they leave the factory and they're sitting at the port, if they're stored in certain areas, they can get. Uh, I wouldn't call it infested, but you'll get a lot of say snails or something like that. Now, if that happens, then they have to add an extra fumigation when they come to Australia. So, yeah. keeping an eye on those sort of things, you know. Uh, is over and above the normal sort of QA. So yeah, okay. um, yeah, we we got and are these all Chinese staff as well. Uh, or yeah, like well, you my, have my you Chinese have to import staff, or how's that work? Yeah, no. My, well, we did a lot of this during COVID. Nobody was allowed into China. So luckily, I've had Chinese staff. The lady that runs my business in China has worked for me for uh, this would be her eleventh year working for me. Um, and she manages these guys, and the guys that we use on contract are ex-mining executives from Australia that are Chinese that have decided to go back and live in China. So they're very, very well versed, are very good at communicating, very good at negotiating, mm. and so we're able to make our way into these factories and talk to the leaders in the factories. We're not down on the on the shop floor; but we we keep an eye. So so that that business. Um, uh, is an interesting business. I just thought I'd share a couple of stories out of, out of actually what you uh, what you do with that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, I'm a, I'm sort of a shareholder of a few a few other businesses. We have a we have a business that um, the guy that created it um, came to me and I sort of um, you know gave him the funds to get get it off the ground. He. Um, had the same sort of uh, outlook that I did is that we need to know, we need to be able to have all of the data on mining oil and gas companies that are listed. Um, so um, what, we're, what we're actually looking for is the data on directors mm. and what they actually own, what sort of skin in the game they've got. But... Um, and so this business is is set up um, with an, the, the analysts that do all this work live in the Philippines, um, but they've been trained um, by this this group, and so they they take every ASX release from each of these companies and take the data out of the release and put it into a database, and then we sell the these databases. So we we the database is an online database where you can you can run data with algorithms to to look at trends and and uh, and what have you. And so this this data is very valuable for brokers. So we um, so that um, I I I could see the merits in getting involved in that business, and it's it's um it's starting to really get some legs now. And is that international directors like across the whole world, or is it country um, specific? It, it is it, it it's stock exchange specific. 
So okay. the mining stock exchanges of the world are, are mainly London, um, Toronto and Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they're, we're loading the data in into these um, databases from there. And so, um, you know, people um, can um, subscribe and, and get um, what they want out of that. But, yeah, okay. What um, do you think of the director ID thing that's been uh, created for, from the Australian government? Oh, look, I'm, um, I, I haven't got a problem with it. I've got a director ID. Um, I'm a, a member of the company directors in Australia. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trained company director from company directors. So I've done all of the the governance training. Um, you know, I, you know, something like that I think is good because it's there's not everything in Australia that is Australia wide. You know, there's most probably that and the railway. You know, look at you know driver's license. You know, there are so many things, you know, and um, for, for a few years I sat on what was called the National Engineering Registration Board and we were trying to get an aud- audience with um, what back, back then was called COAG um, to nationalise engineering registration, but um, it was very hard because the states liked getting the revenue out of registering, <laughs> so yes. regi- registering an engineer in each state. So yes. So um so yeah, but that's that's a that's a um that's a bit like driver's licenses and other things. It's um it's based on the power of the states and, and what they've got there. So um but um yeah, getting back to directors, well, um you know there are but when you do your director training, you get you get some of the worst examples. You, you know in governance and um and and actually um, criminals that are uh, that have manipulated. Um, businesses um, and, and done things wrong. In what kind of ways? I, you know, uh, generally, um, usually insider trading, or um, uh, you know, willfully trading insolvent. Um, you know, doing 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 things outside of um, what what a, um, you're allowed to do as a director. Yeah, so, okay. um, yeah. 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 Cool. Yep. Beauty. All right. Um, I think it's been a great <laughs> chat. I think it's been a great chat. Is there anything else you'd like to, to uh, talk about before we wrap up? I suppose the like the my forefathers in Australia, um, being saddlers, were involved with the explorers, mm. and so the main explorer that they. Um, were involved with was um, Stuart, uh, who was an explorer with Sturt, you know, before him, and so um, where did they explore? Well, you Which know, bits? well Stuart, Stuart, um, I think walked um, the length and breadth of Australia. Um, Sturt obviously was a, um, a captain in the in the uh, English. Um, uh, army and was out here exploring, you know, in the forties, um, and uh, and so uh, that was handed down to me by my great grandfather and I, that, um, who lived until he was ninety seven, um, and uh, uh, and so our our family name um, at the great great grandfather level, um, one of my great Great grandfather's brothers started the um, Lascock nursery business in in South Australia, 
Um, whereas in my line of the family, they've um, nearly all been saddlers until yeah, okay. until cars came along. There you so, go. Uh, I find it wild that like horses were our mode of transport for like five thousand plus years. Yeah, we got cars and we're like, see you later, horses. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I understand why we did it because obviously a car is, you know, it's a car, it's very efficient, but, like, what a relationship we've just let go of. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, and you know, like, I, I uh, uh, you know, I'm proud of the, these old guys and, and what they got up to and um, um, and they all live to um, uh, ripe old age and so the first guy that came here in 1849, there's a family plot in the old Wollonga Cemetery because he lived in Wollonga for a long time and he's, you, there's stories about him that you can pick up on Trove about who's the longest living resident of Wollonga and stuff like that. I love Wollonga. It's a beautiful area. Yeah. No, well, definitely. Um, it's it's part of the the way that you understand that the different countries that emigrated to Australia went to different parts. Mm. And, um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, we have the... Um, uh, you know what became the Barossa and uh, and and with with um, with the others and uh, but down down that way obviously um, where where these English settlers. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the only other thing um, that I suppose I should talk about is um, in Western Australia for about the last five years I've been the chair of um, a, a thing called the. Autism Academy for Software Quality Assurance, um, and it was it was started by a previous chair, and I, I came in as part of the board, and then I, I became the deputy chair, and then I became the chair. And um, what what we found is obviously um, there is a, a larger prevalence of um, people on the spectrum, and that. Um, this um, so autism uh, in 1975 in the Western world was about one in 2,500 people. And it's now one in 60 now. Wow! And so one in 60. Yeah, hectic. And so we uh, we you know, we're at Curtin University in Western Australia, and so we study autism. We study uh, a number of you know like the guide dogs for autistic people and mm. um, a lot of different helpful apps. And we also study um, the actual the causes, which isn't proven. What are the causes um, that are, are not proven? Well, we, we don't know. We don't know what. What are the contenders of causation? Uh, genetically modified food, maybe, diet. Yeah, okay. I think that's it's causing big a lot one. of issues, that one. Yeah, it's a big one. It is yeah. a big one. Yeah, so um, what we found is that uh, so people on the spectrum are a different type of brilliant, okay? And so if you understand that you've just got to um, make their environment um, acceptable for them, they actually can perform brilliantly and, and a lot better than... Uh, so... We, we would call them neurodiverse and we would call non-neurodiverse neurotypical. And so um, what we found is that train them how to code 
and they're actually very good at finding bugs in code. And so that's what this software quality assurance is all about. And by um, and so we would bring these. We sort of work on kids once they they've finished primary school, um, uh, and they can come in on the weekend to the university, and we would we would um, be teaching them to code. Now, if you start to learn how to code, you can then undertake a um, an international uh, testing qualification in coding, and that actually is a different path into university or TAFE because, you, you know, you might be struggling at school because um, you're neurodiverse and you're just not tuning in properly. Yeah. Whereas um, if you, you, you know, you put your earphones on, you've got your, um, uh, most probably your curtains in your room and you start uh, coding. Yeah, these, guys work, these guys work so hard that you've actually got to give them some parameters like start at eight, have a break at 10 mm. and what have you or else they'll just keep working um, because they're very, very hard-working and like very single, smart. Like single-track-minded? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and so they're very good at picking up these um, code bugs and doesn't matter, even even today's iPhone, doesn't matter. Mm. They, have they've, you all, they've all got bugs. <laughs> Sorry to do this. Yeah. Have you seen ChatGPT? No. Oh, mate, <laughs> this might render all that gone. Right. As a program. Okay. Because it's an AI as a part of OpenAI, which is a uh-huh. parent company that has a bunch of AIs. Right. And what it, it is like better than Google. Right. In the sense that you could say, write me in JavaScript uh, the software to be able to um, anything. Something, yeah. something about data entry, yeah. make an app that uh, tells people what the best fitness yeah. uh, routines are. Yep. Da, 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 and yep. it will write the code instantly. And you can also, and I've, to, I've been speaking to Will Bishop. He told me he's an app developer. Check him out. He's a young yep. kid. He's like 20. And he's yep. killing it. And he was saying, look, it's not the best at uh, necessarily writing the code because it's buggy, but it is really good at putting code in there and then finding all the bugs. Right, okay. Well, that's very good. Um, where I'm going with this is that I've been talking to the unis here mm. about, um, and on the unis in Western Australia will help, but um, I'm, I'm in South Australia most of the time, so then we may as well have the same thing here. Yeah, okay. And so, um, you know, we, in, in the West we have all of the big mining companies um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, the process is that you eventually work with these guys and you can get them cadet ships. Um, and they can, and, and so BHP has a very big program now um, of of, um, of neurodiverse people doing um, a lot of um, handy stuff. The the banks over there have these people in in the back rooms doing doing a lot of the cyber security and that. Um, and uh, so yeah, I've been talking to you know the vice chancellor of, of the UniSA and um, starting to build build something here. Um, uh, it's it's in its infancy, but um, we have a successful uh, sort of model to to build on, and yep. so I really do. Um, I I have helped a, a few people here. Um, I've helped some adults actually. Um, I have talked to different unis about um, understanding how these people need to learn, and um, that's been quite 
quite how, successful. How as do well. they need to learn? Like what works? What doesn't well, work? Well, well, so um, the the example that I'll give you is um, with uh, with with the actual um, the actual online study is not a problem for these people. Mm. Uh, they um, will. Um, they'll have their headphones, they'll have their curtains, they'll, they'll be able to do that study. But So is it like sensory deprivation that they need? No, it's, it's just um, they are affected by noise and other activities going on around them. So they, um, it, it's, it's basically they have to be in their own zone. Yeah. When they go to the university, um, firstly, doing tutorials... If they have to, um, at the end of the tutorial, do a, a questionnaire, um, they're, they're, it, it, it isn't sort of built into their wiring to just listen and then answer the question. So I went and negotiated with the unions and said, well, listen, he can t- give him 24 hours and he can record it on his phone, the tutor, and then see how it goes. And, of course, that worked and... and He'd get all his questionnaires right because he had 24 hours and he's able to form it in his mind as to what the answers were. Mm. When it came to the prac, it was the same thing where um, neurodiverse people are quite shy and they're very, they don't mingle or mix in with other people too easily. And so doing a practical in a team was a, um, was for this guy, um, quite onerous so um i talked to the uni about again if he could tape it and what i did is i matched him up with a an engineer in a big engineering firm to go and unscrabble the, the practical with him in, in his own time afterwards and so so that guy went from um giving up to getting honors just because we were able to um teach the teach the surroundings to him yeah, the okay. surroundings being the university and and uh, and all of the um, all of the support that he needed. Interesting. I wonder what the future of all of that is. If we are having a one in six of these neuro, well, really divergent, different. I think right ways. now, I think it's about one in sixty-three at the moment. Um, and well, look, uh, yeah, it's it, uh, yeah, it's something to ponder, isn't it? Like, yeah, so um, what's the world like if that is? Like that's yep. very tailored, right? Mm. That's like a very tailored way to learn, which I, you know, that's probably a good thing is yep. that we have more tailored learning, but in terms of scaling education, it seems like it's really hard. Well, yeah, but uh, what's going to happen to the world? What, what's going to happen to this number? You know, is it is yeah. it what we're eating? Yeah, is you it know? what we're eating? I mean, obviously we, we've heard the, the age-old, it's the vaccines, it's the aluminium in the vaccine theory. Um, and look, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but well, that's right. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not educated to understand yeah. that one. But I, I do. I just have the experience with this to know that what works, and and so, um, yeah. I, I just think that um, everybody deserves to have a uh, have a decent life, and um, you you set it up right for these people, and they really shine. That's cool. That's good to know. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I've had a bit of experience with my life with some people with different versions of. Yeah, on the spectrum. Yeah, no, definitely. There's no, there's no. You know, it's a quite a broad spectrum. 
Um, and uh, and and I think you know with my my involvement with this mining company, um, you know even you know like a, a, we were talking to the native title people the other day, and even if they've got people that are on the spectrum or people that are disabled, there will be roles for them in in our in our mining company. Um, That's there good. will be. Um, yeah, we will be uh, quite inclusive in um, uh, you know wide ranging. Like when we start this mine, we're going to need a lot of people, so we're going to have to spend a lot of money on training, and also facilitating for those that are um, that are have some sort of disability, so that they have some sort of meaningful um, work with us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you very much, Robert. No worries. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> thank you for your time. Thank you for your knowledge. I hope people listening uh, enjoy this. Yes. And, uh, yeah, please like, share, comment. If you have yep. any questions for any of these people, throw them through and, yeah, we might be able to ask them and get back to you another time. Yeah, for sure. Cheers. Beautiful. Thank you.